On this episode of Resi Week, finding better service, CDA's new certifications, and SnapAV's new speakers. All this and more on this episode of Resi Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is Resi Week, episode 236, Auditorium or Visitorium. Support for AV Nation is brought to you by Blackwire Designs, the go-to distributor for the CI industry with an extensive product lineup backed by unmatched sales and system support. Anytime dealers need it, even after hours or on the weekend. Welcome to this episode of Resi Week, your weekly roundup of all the latest news and stories for the residential AV industry. I'm your host, Matt D. Scott for avnation.tv. And this week, we are pleased to be joined by some of my good friends. First, we have Jamie Breesmeister. She is the CEO and boss lady at Integration Controls. How are you doing, ma'am? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank Great. you for being here. Then we have Giles Sutton. He is the SVP of Industry Engagement for Cedia. How are you, sir? Doing really well. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. Glad to have you. And last but certainly not least, we've got my good friend, Garth Loban. He's the Director of Marketing at Athlona. How are you, sir? Hello, Matt. Doing great. Hello, everybody else. Thank you all for being here. Let's jump right into a story that comes to us from Residential Systems. Uh, This is a case study on finding a better scalable service solution. Uh, Essentially, we've all heard about RMR for a long time. There have not been, in my opinion, uh, enough examples, real world examples of the the benefits and the honestly the pitfalls of switching to a completely, you know, essentially outsourced initial service contact uh, solution. So I'm, I'm really glad that Jamie's here because she's going to give us a quick rundown uh, as this article does as well on the, the process of, of, of growing a company and realizing that there comes a point where you, especially as an owner, can no longer give clients your personal cell phone to call you for, for service requests at all hours of the night. Uh, I know this is a, a, an issue for every integrator that I know. Uh, it's an issue for, for me, if we're being incredibly blunt about it. Uh, I had a couple of clients I was going to fire last week and this week for texting me after midnight on a Saturday. Uh, Jamie, First of all, I, I love this story because it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily gloss over some of the, the challenges that come with transitioning to this type of a platform. Was that transition the, the, the hardest part of going this direction? Was it trying to get all of your customers on board? Uh, yeah, the internal, the internal change was hard. It was a culture change. It was everything about how we'd been doing things for so long and they had to change within this process. Um, And new clients onboarding is not an issue at all. So it's the legacy clients that Mm -hmm. actually has proven to be the most challenging. Um, And, and that's because they, they've been getting this type of service for so many years for free, quote unquote. Right. Um, but not really. I haven't been able to guarantee someone would pick up the phone and respond. And we weren't documenting things the way that we should have been. And we didn't have um, everyone who answered the phone managing uh, the, the emotional side of the frustration our clients feel as delicately maybe as, as some did. 
So, um, you know, there, there were a lot of challenges just as there are in any kind of change, whether you take on a new product line or make a shift uh, in the type of work that you do. Um, but I would say probably one of the hardest parts was us onboarding ourselves and fully adopting and trusting the process. And then uh, second, dip, most difficult was um, converting legacy clients. And we're still on that mission. When you talk about um, the internal processes of getting you know, everybody on your team on the same page and, and onboarding into that platform, what did that, what did that look like? What was, the, what was the major challenges in that? Was it just when a client reaches out, forcing them back into that system, into that program? Or was it more culturally based? Um, it, it was more following the process. I wouldn't say it was culturally based outside of um, our inherent desire to fix what's broken now. So, so we had to hold ourselves back and hold ourselves to the standards that we said we would go by. We can't treat everybody the same way if we're charging some clients for service and some aren't being charged for uh, remote service. Uh, so we had to, we had to tow our own line. And I think by the nature of us wanting to fix every problem as we have in the past quickly now, uh, that, that was really hard. Um, I think that was probably one of the most challenging parts of it. Culturally, we're service-based. We want to do everything we can to make it right by our client. Uh, we've picked up a lot of our clients because no one else calls when they have service from their previous integrator. So, uh, it's in our blood. It's in. It's definitely there. But I think the hardest part was really just um, following our own rules, and trusting that when we hand the debt to somebody else, that that they would hold their end of the bargain too. Yeah, very good, Giles. I I I saw you shaking your or not shaking, but nodding your head in agreement to to a lot of that. Um, you and I've kind of talked about this a little bit in the past. Is this is this one of those all or nothing approaches where? to really make these kind of RMR service agreement processes sustainable, that you really have to both internally and to your clients take that all or nothing approach that nobody gets special access, if you will. Yeah, I, I think so actually. And uh, we all know this is one of the, like probably the biggest challenges our industry has. And it's, it's, it, it's always never been particularly clear to me why it is such an issue when you look at some other industries that really have this completely nailed, like the security, you know, the security industry. And, you know, the way I, I think back to when I was an integrator, and one of the things that I found was actually quite effective was really to have a very clear cutoff point to A, sort of when the project ends. So that often we deal with very complex, you know, projects, our, 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 our members are often work on projects that span over a number of years and can be phased. It's very clear, first of all, that you need to um, actually separate when the project has, has technically finished. So uh, when I ran my company, I used to issue an actual warranty certificate at the point that the project was finished. And that might not necessarily be when they finally pay you. It's where you uh, are saying that is where the project finishes and then you get uh, X amount of time of free, of free warranty cover. Then that gives you a time, that, that then gives you a time to then sell any kind of ongoing maintenance that you may want to after that expires or, or towards the end of that period. And I think that's one of the, the biggest challenges is that a lot of uh, customers in our industry, as we know, uh, expect servicing for free. They spend an X amount of money with you and it all comes for free. But it is, I think, something where it's really important to define with the customer the cutoff period. 
Or the other thing you can do is really include it right at the start. So actually tell them how much the ongoing servicing is going to be in, when you're in, in the contract, when you're quoting for it. Just really line, itemize it right from the start. Um, but it is something that is still, you know, a, a, a tough nut to crack. And we, we know that that's, it, I think you've got to, it is an all-in approach. You've got to treat everyone on the same, on the same level, really. Garth, is this something where I, I'm always somewhat baffled by these systems, if you will, because I don't see other trades ever dealing with the, the headaches from this standpoint that we seem to. If somebody's, you know, water heater goes down, they expect response, but they're not expecting to text someone and get an instantaneous response. They're not expecting to be able to call, you know, a, a company owner or a plumbing company get the owner on the phone and say, Hey, I need a, I need you here right now. Now they'll call a 24 hour plumbing company to do that, but then they'll have no problem paying a, you know, $400 truck roll fee. What is it about our channel and, and the way that we do business? Is it, is it that we are so, we become such a part of that, that client's life? What is it, that, it is. That, that brings us in? Well, one of the things that we have to remember about our industry, and it's something that Cedia says very well, we are everywhere the customer is, right? Could be their living room, could be their hotel room, it could be whatever environment their family is, is together on. And our systems play a major role in keeping families and groups together when it's a residential system like this. Increasingly, now as more of us are working from a home office, those AV systems are part of the network systems. And when the network goes down, now we can't do business for those of us who are now working at home. So it really is important to have these services that allow integrators like Jamie's company to be able to provide an increased level of service that they were already doing. And so having that ability to have a customer know right away, someone with a high emotional quotient, as it says in the case study, that they're going to understand that is the person taking the call. They're going to understand what I'm going through as a customer. And that's important because they're a reflection of us, this service that's reflecting you know, Jamie's company in this case. And so with our systems being more and more vital, whether, you know, we could say they're entertainment-based systems, but it really is more than that. You know, in the next room over, my kid's got her laptop on and she's getting ready for a fall semester, okay? So if the system goes down, the network goes down, the entertainment system goes down, there's a big part of the family structure that's in disarray. So our industry, our AV industry is probably a little bit more than that. If some sprinkler breaks outside, it's not the same thing. I might take a DIY approach on that. Your water heater example, you know, depending upon when and where that blows, you might want to have somebody come by and take care of that right away. But again, how many times have those of us on the call had a problem with our plumbing and we try to call the quote unquote 24 hour service? It's like, well, it's going to cost you a lot of extra money to send somebody out right now. That's not what I need right now. I need the water to stop flowing. So I think these services for a company like Jamie's company are vital in making them bigger and more complete and allow them to do what they do best, that is put in the systems and be able to have those relationships. I, is, sorry. I was going to jump in just there. I'd say I completely agree. Um, I, I, I think, though, there might be a broader 
challenge in the industry that actually just charging for services in general. And I think that actually is, is part of this problem. Um, I, I had a conversation with Paul Starkey uh, recently, and he thinks millions and millions of dollars of, of profit is left on the table from, and you know, Paul Starkey was behind the Bravis, Bravis group. Um, that actually a lot of uh, integrators are very happy or complacent with just making the margin on, on product and actually the services come second. So I think that is actually perhaps the issue here, which spills into this, this ongoing servicing problem. Um, it's, it's just a, a challenge when it comes to uh, actually charging the right amount of money for your design and installation services. Is, is that the, is, has that been the major holdback? Is that all too often within the industry? we have not charged for service appropriately. I know when we deal with commercial IT networks and we come in, that customer is expecting to be billed in 15 minute increments when we're on site. They, they're expecting the second that they shoot off an email for tech support, if they're not under a plan, that they're going to get billed the same way they get billed by their lawyer or their accountant that that's billable time, you're going to send me a bill. Has it been that we've taken too friendly of an approach to most of our clients to yeah. not charge them for this? It's, too, it's been too much of a handshake approach, I think. You know, I, I think there's a lot of that um, agreement by handshake still happening, certainly with change order management. And when the job is actually done, to Giles' point, that you know, there's how many classes have we taken uh, or taught at CDA the final 5% and closing out the job? And how many um, classes have I taken? I don't even know how many where they talk about charging for design services. And yet, to make that change and be confident with that adoption and actually charge for a design fee before you design the job, I mean, it's taken us 15 years to get there to where this is just part of our process now. And if you don't want to take that step, then you don't want to do business with us. So I think in some ways we've kind of done our, our stuff. The industry has done itself a disservice by, um, by uh, we've done ourselves a disservice by always responding to that email and that call right away all the time, no matter what, no matter if it's 10 a.m., 10 p.m., nights, weekends, funeral weddings, it doesn't matter, we respond. And so I, I think what we can all learn from, from that is, you know, for these types of um, RMR platforms to go into place, you have to, like I said before, follow your own rules. And if you don't want to go down this RMR line with some other platform, you decide to do it in-house, you still have to follow your own rules. Mm -hmm. And um, setting up health, healthy boundaries between what you do at work and then having off time at home is really important. Um, we have a client right now who's, who's challenging the system, like actively Monday morning today is <laughs> challenging the system and feels that he spent enough with us that he should just get the same service he's always gotten. And, um, and we have a project that hasn't closed with him yet. So he's got, you know, one, one here and then one somewhere else and the other one hasn't closed. So it's sticky, right? Like we want to make him happy, but we also have our own rules to follow. So, um, what are we going to do? I need to go read my service tickets a little bit more and see what conversations have been had first. But guess what? It's documented. So I know where to go for that information. So that's very helpful for me. Yeah. It's all about the industry growing up. And speaking of that, uh, let's move on to our next story of the day. This comes to us from residential tech today. 
and uh, CD is Ed Wink, uh, which we've got Giles. He'll fill in for Ed today because I'm going to ask him all the questions about this. Uh, there is a new thought process behind CD's brand new CIT and IST designations. Uh, if you haven't been paying attention, Cedia updated their website kind of dramatically and combined, what, five sites into, into one? Is that correct? Absolutely. Yep, that's correct. Yeah, five major sites into one, which is fantastic. Uh, they launched the new CD Academy education platform. Uh, and then this one has been uh, revving along quite well for the last little bit. It's the revamping of the CDS certification. And what they did is they essentially uh, brought in two new certifications. One, the CIT, which is the Cabling and Infrastructure Technician, and the CDS Certified Integrated Systems Technician. Uh, for the the new certification. So Giles, let me let me start with you. Is this something where the old certifications just were outdated and, and, and weren't really valid anymore? Or is it that these are more focused on the typical jobs that we see people doing, thus the certifications fit the job type? So it's, it's a bit of both and, and something else on top of it. So I think the first thing is every five years we do revisit our... Um, our job classifications, and we do a lot of work in making sure that our certifications are still relevant to today. Um, the other aspect is that CEDIA um, certifications are now ANSI accredited. So um, that was a huge win for CEDIA. I think one of the biggest wins in a really long time. Um, and uh, really it is credit to um, uh, well, actually hundreds of, of, of uh, volunteers who have helped sort of shape this either by um, conducting surveys or sending in job descriptions. Uh, but also we had to um, change our governance structure to actually become uh, a certification body. So we had to create a certifications commission. It had to be carved out and completely separate to the other sort of uh, activities that we're doing as an organization around education development. To, to fulfill ANSI um, standards, you, you really have to carve out the separate uh, part of the uh, organization and that has to be audited and go through various different processes. But um, that now means that our, our certifications are now the only uh, ANSI accredited certifications in the industry. They're proper certifications. Uh, we have an entry level one, which is the CIT, uh, which is really for those that are new to the industry. It gives you that kind of foundational uh, knowledge um, uh, and then you have a, a sort of more advanced IST and these are replacing the ESC and the ESCT uh, certifications that, that people are aware of. And, you know, I guess people will ask, why does it matter? Well, these and to have ANSI accredited certifications, you're really aligning yourselves with other design and build professionals. Um, mm -hmm. in, the, in the past, but what's the point of a, of a CDA certification? It's just out there. It, it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't really help me commercially. Well, now you can really, you know, push the fact that this is ANSI accredited. Um, so it's gone through a certain level of scrutiny that it isn't just a fluffy certification. It's something very full bodied uh, that aligns, as I said, with those other design uh, and build professionals, which as we know, the design and build industry is heavily, uh, you know, regulated and, and, and relies on certain licenses and standards and things like that. So it really paves the way uh, for us it, when we come to look at developing more standards in education as well. Very good. Garth, when, when you see this, you guys at Athlona obviously have a ton of certifications for, mm -hmm. you know, your products and, and your, your line of equipment, et cetera. How do, how do you align and, and how do you promote 
your level certifications as well as things like CDS certifications, where's the, where's the push for, for both? Mm-hmm. Well, here's, here's what's brilliant about the CDA certifications that they're putting in place and how it dovetails with a company like Atlona who has their own. From our perspective, there's so many people getting into our industry on a yearly basis that really don't have the background in how to properly put a system together, how to properly wire something. What are the core technologies behind it? So a company like Atlona creates certification programs that allow these newcomers to come into the industry, learn what the equipment is, where it goes, how it's put together and how to wire it. One of the biggest areas that we've had to focus on quite a bit recently as we've moved into control over IP and AV over IP is that we've had to make sure that people understand how to use a computer network, how to work to that, how to configure that and how to put it up together. Now, you look at these two standards that CD has put together, they're, they're particularly brilliant. And as, 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 as Gail says, these are ANSI ISO certified. And what's really slick about that is that they're not teaching to the test at CEDIA. They're creating a certification that will be globally recognized. And by that, and, and Giles knows this certainly more than I do, you've got six different domains in the entry level one, another six domains of areas that are covered within the advanced one. But what I like is when I started to take a look at all the disciplines being covered in these two certifications, it wasn't just everything from first aid on the job site to customer service on the job site. It was what a router is and how to configure that and what needs to be done when the project is done. So these two certifications will dovetail quite nicely into a a company like Atlona's certifications because that will allow us to focus on our products and helping our customers take this core technology training and certification that they've been qualified on over at Cedia and then build upon that with coursework that we offer. So I think that will allow us to now be a little more specific, save those designers time. But broadly speaking, now we have an international pair of international standards because of the ANSI ISO uh, certification that CEDIA has attained with these two, that now you're gonna be able to take those anywhere because they're working not just within the United States, but with a global certification process. And that's the part I think is really brilliant because this is something that's going to mean something. We talked earlier about our, our uh, industry growing up this is another example of it. Yeah, very good. And and I love the the international aspect of that. Obviously, CD is a global org, but it, it it would have been really I shouldn't say easy, but it would have been simple to just get something that was US based, but to to go internationally and get ISO is huge. Jamie, I I arguably left the easiest but most complex question for you. If you go and get these certifications. Uh, just not necessarily you specifically, but the proverbial you, when you go and get your certification, how do you leverage that when you're talking to a client? I don't because it's a professional thing. I, I, I really don't use my certifications for end users. I do when I'm communicating with the design build trades, um, industry professionals, I do tell our end users that we have certifications from our industry association, CEDIA, but I don't use them really to promote ourselves unless it gets to a point where, um, well, tell me the differences between your company and this company. Okay. Well, I can easily tell you those differences. Um, but, but I, I really don't use it as a selling tool and, and I use it 
to qualify my guys when I'm trying to hire new people. You know, I, I see it for me, it's a business standpoint of, of have the people that are applying for this entry or advanced level position uh, gotten these certifications to a certain point? Do I need to pay for them to get these certifications? What, what, what knowledge do they come with? So I, I don't necessarily use it to sell um, with end users directly unless it's, you know, very individual circumstance. Um, I, we do use it within the design build community uh, because I feel they understand certifications. They know what they're, what they're for really. I don't feel that any one sale has been won because we have certifications or not, quite frankly. Um, to me, it's more of a professional development thing. Very good. All right, let's hit one last story real quickly, uh, just because I'm intrigued. Uh, this comes to us from avnation.tv. SnapAV has unveiled uh, some new episode, Impression in Ceiling Speakers. What is intriguing to me is this is a 4.1 or a 2.1 kit. Uh, typically, you've heard that in soundbars and you've heard that in landscape. This is not something that we typically see for in ceiling. So, Garth, I, I, I kind of want to start with you on, on this one. Is this, an, is this just a different direction? Is this just hitting a different uh, application where, where people are not looking for two, you know, full spectrum in ceiling speakers? They want to plus a subwoofer. Well, as an audio guy by training, I can give you my take on this. That's and why there's I asked you. <laughs> something really quite intriguing about this, uh, this system. Let's take it from the point of view, you know, that our living rooms are where families spend time and we want them to be showcases in some, in some examples. Gone are the days when you're going to be able to put a, a pair of infinities on stands and sit them right next to your TV because someone or your cat or dog are going to knock it over. There's also the aesthetics point of view. All right, so now we want to have full bandwidth sound. We want to have it in our environment, but we don't want to see it. A good friend of mine back in the day referred to this as, well, is it an auditorium or is it a visitorium? In the case of a living room, looks really matter. So if we take the concept of this satellite system and the way that they've designed it is pretty intriguing. You've got either two or four uh, two-way speakers that are about four inch uh, in diameter, okay, uh, with a five-inch grill. I'll get to that in a second. The other component, this is the intriguing part, is they've got what's called a bandpass subwoofer. And without getting too far into the weeds, this cabinet is designed to only allow pass the low frequencies that we want into the room. So the chamber is built, there's a special hose that, if you will, will allow you to direct those low frequencies into the room. So what's nice about this is that we can have full bandwidth sound with the satellites and the subwoofer without having to see anything in the room. It's coming down from above, which is great for those folks that might not want a full THX certified, you know, auditorium in their house or they, or they can't put that up for some reason. But with this, you can kind of hide everything. And the way that Snap has put this together, they've got a four inch driver for either the uh, two way, sorry, four inch cabinet uh, enclosure for the uh, two ways or the opening for the subwoofer. And when you place the grill on top of it, now it's a five inch diameter grill that matches most of the recessed cans that we're putting into the environments as well. So while the ceiling may be Swiss cheese when you look up at it, at least it's all consistent. I remember back when I helped my dad put in his home theater in his custom home, and we had these, 
you know, two-way six and a half inch drivers and then this 10 inch grill for the subwoofer. And it was just all off centered and it, it really didn't look that great once you looked up. But this gives you the opportunity to kind of space it out within the park hands, the park hands, <laughs> there's my other industry, with the uh, recessed lighting that we have in the uh, ceiling and might make it look a little bit better. And certainly it won't make it look obtrusive. Very good. Jamie, w- the first thing I thought about when I saw this uh, and I'm glad I asked Garth that question first because it <laughs> makes me feel somewhat not as smart as I thought I was. Um, but do we really need more more in-ceiling speakers? Hi, you know, if categorically, maybe not, no. I'm going to say no categorically. But at the same point, um, we're all trying to service a variety of clients and price points. And there are other small aperture speakers that are out there that have a high price point. My assumption, um, knowing some of Snap's lineup is that these would be a little more entry level. And, you know, for for that, like potentially, yeah. Um, will we use them? I don't, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> I don't really have a job right now that I'm thinking about. I, If we're looking at high design, typically we have different brands that we look at. Um, but you know, like I said, you have to kind of build a system a couple different ways these days to meet, you know, various price points and different, um, priorities. So do we need another speaker line? No. Uh, do we have one any way to meet a new price point? Yeah, it'll serve a purpose. I'm sure. (laughs) A very diplomatic answer. I love it. Giles, uh, let's, let's wrap this up with you. The, the two things that hit me when I, when I saw this and when I followed this was one, I I personally installed some of the, you know, four inch or three inch in ceiling speakers that are designed to match, uh, pot lights, recess cans, par lights, whatever you want to call them, uh, depending on your location. Um, and they, they looked good. They sounded great at low volumes, but they were low volume they just did not have a lot of power no matter what you put behind them. Um, does the, does the ability of these to blend in and, and, and line up with that existing ceiling, you know, openings, does that supersede? And again, none of us have heard these, so we don't, we don't know. These might sound phenomenal. Uh, they might not sound phenomenal. We have no idea, but if they line up, if, if they fit the, the aesthetic of the room better, will that dramatically improve their acceptance? I, possibly. I mean, I, Jamie will know as well from working with designers and architects, they, they often it's the fewer holes in the ceiling, if, if any, really is like the, 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 um, the main response you get from them. I think um, obviously with, with a, a smaller uh, product with, when you're using multiples, I think the idea is that really you're trying to increase dispersion as well. Maybe it, so you're not necessarily having, if you have a larger room, for example, you're not, you're not having just two speakers which are blasting out. So maybe if something like a dining room, you get a more even uh, distribution of the audio. Um, but I think, I mean, from, certainly from my experience, you know, 
they don't want to see anything. And actually, you see this in a lot of the times when you get a lot of press uh, around uh, our projects as they airbrush out any speaker aperture <laughs> uh, that's even in a photo. So I think um, there is certainly something to be said for having uh, it, it, the same size as the light fitting, light fixtures, for sure. But um, whether it will sway the opinion of a, of a, of a designer or a client to, to have this kind of speaker over something just a little bit bigger, I, I, I'm not sure. Very good. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's wrap it there. It's going to do us for time. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, Jamie, if people want to connect with you, learn more about integration controls, where can they do that? Uh, you can find us on the web at integrationcontrols.com or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Control STL. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Giles, thank you so much for joining us as well. If people want to connect with you, learn more about Cedia, where can they do that? Uh, they can email me directly, gsutton at cedia.org. And if they want to find out about the certifications, go to cedia.net forward slash certifications. Very good. Thank you, sir. Garth, my friend, if people want to connect with you, learn more about Athlona, where can they do that? Absolutely. The best way is at lona.com. And if they want to get a hold of me, you can reach me at garth.loban at atlona.com. Excellent. Thank you all again. Uh, thank you for joining us. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Twitter at Matt D. Scott and pretty much every other social platform. But more importantly, please stop by avianation.tv where you'll find this show as well as a wide variety of the other shows with all the verticals that we cover. When you visit the website, please take a moment to check out our supporters. We are extremely thankful for their support and ask you to check them out as well. Thanks again for watching. That's all the time we have for this episode of Resi Week. Thank you.